Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. thank you and praise you for you just being an awesome God for you caring for us and loving us father and I do pray that we would understand your kingdom your spirit the world around us father and your uh, uh, way of understanding the world around us father uh, we need you more today than ever before continue to work and to touch and to heal and to minister as only you can father we do thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory father in Jesus' name we pray Amen. Amen. We're in 2 Kings chapter 6, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. And we have been looking at Elisha, and we have been talking on how Elisha is a softer, kinder, gentler kind of guy. Elijah, his fore predecessor, whatever he would be, the guy before him, uh, Elijah was an in-your-face, confrontational guy that lived out in the wilderness, came in and screamed at everybody. And Elisha is somebody that lives in the cities, cares about people, and cares about every detail. And he's trying to show you that God cares about you in light of, and don't forget, these are the dark, evil days of the Queen Jezebel. And she is really the queen. She's the queen mother. Joram, her son, is on the throne. Her husband, Ahab, died. And yet there's, uh, you find out in one of the verses, one of the sons finally comes up and rips the, 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 the throne away. And, and I think it's Josiah comes up and says, it's time for, time for us to get uh, back to godly and having a king do its king and get rid of this queen mother picture. And, and Jezebel really started it. So if you came to see the king, you know, the king would have his throne. And then, you know, right next to that was the queen mother's throne. And mother would be sitting down there watching Junior. You know, you say, you do anything wrong, Jezebel's coming after you. And that tyrant of a kind of lady running the thing. And she's destroying the country. She wants to bring in idol worship and get people away from Jehovah. And Elisha is trying to say, no, uh, we, need to, we need to show the love of God. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And so we come into chapter 6, and there's a beautiful illustration, just a neat little story. There's a couple little, uh, hopefully we're going to get through three big stories today. If we're smart, we'll get through chapter 6 and 7. And uh, you're going to see a series of three stories. They kind of all tie together, and it's showing God's love and concern for each one. Sounds kind of trivial, but it's a, it made the Bible, uh, this first story up here. Chapter 6, verse 1 of 2 Kings. It says, now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha. So this is just one of the, the average prophets, not one of the big prophets. He's just one of the prophets. He comes up and he says to Elisha, he says, behold, now the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. We got a hundred or so prophets here. and We're all cramped into tight quarters. We're, 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 we need to build a bigger place. He says, please let us go to the Jordan. And each of us take from there a beam and let us make a, a place there for ourselves where we can live. Let's go make a cabin, right? It's not that hard. We'll go cut down some trees. Everyone go get a tree, stack them up. You got a cabin. So he says, sounds like a good idea. Go. And then one said, 
uh, please be willing to go with your servants. We want you to go with us. Make this a spiritual retreat, if you would. And he said, fine, I'll go along with you. I shall go. And so he went with them, and when uh, they had uh, come to, came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a beam, he's out there hacking away, the axe head fell into the water. So I don't know if you guys have ever chopped wood. Um, nowadays, they've got several cute ways of keeping the axe head on the, you know, whatever it is, the axe stick or whatever it is, right? And uh, the axe handle. And uh, I've chopped wood, and it's quite a, quite a scary endeavor when you take that axe and you whip it back there, and then that axe head goes, and it's a deadly flying object within seconds. And uh, I find it interesting in Deuteronomy, they also talk about this as an accidental death scene. You go out and chop wood and the axe head just flies off and kills the guy. And, uh, and then he could run to the city of refuge. But here, it's saying the guy's out there, he's trying to make a, a, a nice place for the, uh, the church to be. And so he's out there hacking away and all of a sudden, the axe head comes flying off and it goes right into the middle of the water. And now this guy's sitting there going, oh no. And he goes, you know, you lost the axe head. Without the axe, you can't cut anything. And, uh, and it says, uh, verse 5, but he was felling a beam. The axe head fle uh, uh, fell into the, the water. And he cried out and he said, alas, my master. And he goes, this is the problem. For it was borrowed, you know. This isn't even my axe. I'm not even at loss here. This is my friend's axe and I just lost it here. I can't even rebuild it and make another handle for it. What am I going to do? And, uh, and during that time, that's a very expensive thing to have a piece of iron, right, that's going to be shaped and forged. Uh, it, you know, it's not just a small thing, and somebody's probably got to be upset. So the man of God, he assesses the situation, and he comes up and he says, well, where did it fall? Where's this thing going? So you can see they're kind of out there by the pond, and when he showed him the place, you know, it fell over there. I saw the splash, and it went down. And so... Elijah turns around, he does something stupid here. It's kind of weird. He says he cut off a stick and he threw it in there. He goes, oh, he takes a stick and he kind of tosses it into the water right over there. Yeah, he throws a stick in after it. And then miraculous things start to happen as the stick hits the water. He threw it in there and made the iron float. So all of a sudden the axe head comes back up to the top. Supernatural. It's uh, not a a physically normal thing to see iron floating, of course. And then he turns around and he says, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and he took it. So all of a sudden, they can find it. It comes to the top. Neat little miracle. And I like it. It, it, it shows that God is concerned about every detail of our life. And what we think is trivial, you know, I've got a tool, I lost it. Uh, sometimes we need to pray and say, Lord, you know, uh, where did this go? What happened here? And, and God cares about those prayers in our life. And it also shows that the power of the Holy Spirit is to do things that are abnormal to our physical senses. We deem everything in a, in a sense of science sometimes. We become so analytical. And we look at something and we say, God, oh, you can't do that. That's impossible. And here God is doing the physical impossible. He's watching that axe head float back up. And in the spiritual kingdom, all things are possible. Anything can happen. We need to be open to the fact that, that, that God can sometimes do the insane things that we ask of him. And he says, I can do this. And I care about what's happening in your life. 
He cares about the small details. Another thing to pull out of this is, I find it interesting, is that he didn't just sit down there, walk up to the, you know, pond and, you know, do the, you know, Luke thing from Star Wars and levitate the Starcraft out of the water or anything. He could have just, he, he, he used, if you would, a, a, a stick. Now, why throw a stick? Is Jesus trying to say, if you, next time you need to get the iron to float, you throw a stick out there? Is, is he trying to teach us a principle of, of something with sticks cause iron to gravitate and to grow, uh, come back up to the water? No, I don't think so. He, he's picking a, a weird thing to do. Throw the stick out there. Why did he do that? God told him to. I think there's some weird things that happen in the Bible. When you see Jesus go into a healing, sometimes he spits in the guy's eye. Now, is they're trying to teach us a, a, a healing seminar, and this is how you heal people. You go up and spit in people's face, and then they're going to be healed. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard or seen that teaching. Sometimes Jesus goes down, he grabs dirt, rubs it in his hands, and rubs it in the guy's eyes, and then the guy's healed. Jesus is always doing something, but it, I find it interesting that they're picking, I don't know what the term would be, something in the middle to get something done. You know, in order for the walls of Jericho to come down, you march around the city seven times, you blow the trumpet, and boom, everybody scream, and then the walls come tumbling down. Why? Why does God ask us to do something stupid? There's got to be a term for that. An act, a crazy act that has, is, would be irrelevant with the, the intent and the purpose of, of what you're trying to accomplish. Why, why not just go in the name of Jesus be healed? Why spit in the guy's eyes? Why do I have to throw dirt at him? Why march around the city seven times? Why do I have to do all the things that are there? Why did Elisha uh, and, well, it was Elisha who had to uh, uh, raise the body from the dead. He, he laid on top of the body, eye for eye, lips for lips, you know, and he had to do this weird process. And, and with that, sometimes God comes up to you and, and asks you to do something really dumb. You know, you, wanna, you want your cancer removed or something. I don't know, you, you, you step on some coffee grounds and swallow them, uh, you know, and, and you go, God says, step on some coffee grounds and swallow them and you'll be healed. And you go, well, that's crazy. But you go, well, if that's what... God wants me to do, I'll step on some coffee grounds and I'll drink it or eat it and, you know, and why'd you do that? And God has a tendency sometimes to speak and tell you, and, and, and I would imagine the idea behind it is to say, here's an act of obedience, uh, a step of faith. You're going to do something out of the abnormal to say that, Lord, I heard your voice. I'm listening to ask me to do something peculiar. I'm going to take a stick and throw it at the axe head. Yeah, that's real smart. But, Lord, if that's what you told me to do, I'm going to take the axe, you know, take a piece of stick, throw it out there. Fine. And we saw the same thing. We had poisonous gourds, and uh, Elisha comes up and throws some meal into the pot and says, it's fine. We can eat it now. Well, it, common sense would say if you had poisonous gourds and you throw meal in whatever that is if that's some corn or some salt and i don't words translated a couple different ways that doesn't take away poison you know what i mean and yet he's saying it's fine we're, we're good to go 
And for you and I, take it in the practical sense, I, I still see that there's some weird things sometimes that we are asked to do. And, and when God comes up to you and he says, uh, I want you to do this and then you'll get that. Okay. <laughs> that sounds dumb to me, God, but uh, I'm willing. Uh, I'm obedient and I'll follow. And I'll do what you ask me to do, Lord. And I've seen that happen a couple times. And sometimes, you know, other Christians can look at it and say, you're crazy. But I would say, you know, here's Elijah. If I was sitting there watching the whole thing happen, and I'd say, you're crazy, Elijah. Well, you throw a stick at it. What kind of dumb thing's that? Yet, after throwing the stick, he put it in there. The accent floats. You go over and pick it up and take it. God, God has a weird way of doing some things to us sometimes. And he cares about us. So let's go to the next illustration, verse 8. We're going to come into another scenario here. So it says, now the king of Aram, and for us that's going to be uh, Ben-Hadad, right? Our famous enemy that has been bothering Israel and been destroying them off to their border. It's a border nation of theirs on the other side of the Jordan. And uh, poor Israel is being hammered by these guys left and right. And uh, the king of Aram was warring against Israel, making these raids. And he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. So he's saying, we're going to go in and attack, and we're going to make a raiding party, and let's all go into this valley, this hill, at this specific place. Now, on the other side, over in Israel, it says, The man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king, Jehoram. And he's saying, beware that you do not pass this place, for the uh, Arameans are, are coming down there. So he says, you know, they're over here in the valley, and uh, Elisha just gets the spiritual word of wisdom. Stay away from, you know, this valley, because they're setting an ambush up for you over there. And he goes up to the king and says, king, you know, when you're going to live, you just stay away from that. There's a trap over there. So... God giving the insight to the prophet is giving the king the heads up in the battle scene. So uh, verse 9 again, And the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are, uh, are coming down there. Aram was part of Syria, <coughs> the whole region over to the other side of the Jordan. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. So this is a pattern where the prophet was speaking to the king, trying to be nice to him, and trying to give him the heads up in battle to defend the nation. Well, sooner or later, the king of Aram, uh, the Syrian guy, Ben-Hadad, is going to get upset. He's going to say, man, we're setting all these ambushes and we're catching nothing. So it says, verse 11, Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. He's, he's got a, 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 a suspect that he's worried about. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? So he's going, Look, I'm setting these traps. I'm catching nothing. Obviously, there's a spy in our midst. One of you guys is ratting us out. Now, who would go over and rat us out? Who's being the spy here and telling Israel all this stuff? Now, it's interesting if we're students here, we're going to understand that we know who two of his right-hand men are, two of Ben-Hadad's closest advisors. If you can remember, was it last week, we talked that Ben-Hadad's right-hand man, the one that Ben-Hadad leaned on, was the guy Naaman, right? Naaman was the leper 
who was healed of leprosy. He had to go over there. So here's Ben-Hadad. He's going, look, you think Naaman's ratting me out? I sent him over to Israel. He gets cured of his leprosy. Yeah, you know, I bet you, I bet you this guy, he comes back with two mules full of sand because he just loves the place. He's stabbing me in the back. Suspicion is running crazy. We're going to find out there's another guy that is going to be uh, this guy, Hazel. And you'd have to go future into the book, but Hazel is going to be the guy that's actually going to kill Ben-Hadad and take his place and become a vicious murderer of Israel. And you're going to find out that it's Elisha who was going to appoint uh, this guy, Hazael, to uh, uh, take over for his king. And we're getting into a story in chapter 10 or 11. But obviously, maybe this guy's saying, hey, there's something wrong here. And if you, we knew Hazael, and I'm giving you future information here, but Hazael means uh, uh, a witness of God. Or, or, or God sees. And Hazael, El, El would be, and he's going to be a future guy for us, but he's, the, he's, he's a, 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 a witness of God, and it's the God Je Jehovah, or the word El, which is just like El is in Elisha. So when you see El in a name, sometimes that's referring specifically to the God of Israel, where Ben-Hadad, right, was somebody that worshipped uh, Hadad, which was the storm god of Syria. So maybe this guy's name, right? Oh, you're a witness to the Jehovah God. Maybe he's got a, he goes, I'm smelling a rat here. And he goes, you guys are ratting me out. One of you guys has stabbed me in the back. What is everyone all kissing up to Israel all of a sudden? And uh, he's saying, there's a spy here. This just isn't working. But one of his servants said, and we're not sure who this one was. He's going to say, he goes, no, my Lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, maybe this is Naaman, who says, see, I know him, he healed me. He says, no, my prophet, O king. He says, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. You just whisper something to your wife. God hears it. Elisha can understand it, and he'll rat you out. Just something that you just, that pillow talk. It's going to spread. God hears exactly what's being said to your wife. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that every careless word that we speak, you know, uh, uh, it, we're going to be held accountable for. Uh, sometimes we have to be careful with the things that we do say because God hears. If God cares so much about the axe head and he's willing to, to, to hear a crazy prayer to say, God, I, I lost this axe head. Can you help me bring it back? And God's going to do a divine supernatural miracle. Well, it also goes the other way, where God cares about every little detail in your life, and, and he's very concerned. And sometimes we need to say, Lord, I want every small thing to be right, and then the big things follow suit. And so he said, well, if this guy is this prophet's out there, uh, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, is upset. And he says, you tell me there's a prophet out there? Well, this is what we'll do. We'll go kill the prophet. And so he said, go and see where he is, that I may send him and take him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. So they go, let's go get this guy. He's in Dothan. He's in a certain place. Let's ride and attack him. And so he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So all of a sudden it says, now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out. Now, if you're a keen student, you've been with us for a while. 
we knew that uh, Elijah had an assistant, uh, an attendant. His name was Gehazi, right? And I, for the life of me, can't quite figure this out because Gehazi, according to the last story we were in, he went and stole some money from Naaman the leper, and Naaman turned around and gave him some money back, and then he comes back to Elisha, and then Elisha says, Cursed be you, you can have the leprosy that was on Naaman. And because you're a greedy little guy, the leprosy is upon you. And he even says, for the rest of your life. Now, the tough story is, is in chapter 10 of the book, we get to see Gehazi back on the scene, and he's speaking to the king of Israel. And you go, why would a leper have been in the presence of the king? Did he get cured? Did he repent? Um, and maybe the timetable of events is not chronologically in order. I, that doesn't sound too, too right because there's a sequence of things that are happening here. And some people could argue that maybe Gehazi, this is Gehazi again. It doesn't tell us who he is or maybe Gehazi has been replaced by somebody else. Strange thought, something to think about. But maybe it's the new guy who's sitting down there. And he's, he, he comes up, and so Elisha's there camping out. He's got his assistant with him. They wake up in the morning. All the horses are surrounding him. It says, Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And so this guy, you know, he's sitting there going out to get the bucket of water. He looks up. He sees all the enemy around him. He freaks out, drops the water pan, comes running back in. I don't know. And... Uh, and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? We're trapped, we're trapped, we're trapped. And so he answered, he says, Do not fear. And so this is Elisha comes up and he says, Look, you new, new guy, you're a rookie at this. Or maybe he's trying to teach Gehazi a lesson. But he says, uh, he says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So here they are, they're probably in a campsite. There's three or four of them, or the, both of them are sitting down, they're having a nice little tent. They wake up and they see, I don't know, let's just say there's 30, 40, 50 horses and men staring at them as they wake up in the morning. And then Elisha turns around and says, I'm not afraid of them. The greater is, uh, are those that are with us than, than these guys that are against us. We got them outnumbered. And at this point, you can just see the guy going, what are you talking about? You and I are here alone. You know, we're trapped. This is the end for us. And it says, verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, you know, give this guy a, an ounce of, of, of encouragement. Oh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so all of a sudden you're seeing here there's the physical men that were coming against them and then immediately as the servant's eyes were open you're seeing thousands of God's horses, the hordes of, and hosts of heaven are, are there and, and Elisha says, see look we got these guys outnumbered, God's here. One angel kills 185,000 people. We got gazillions of angels around us, nothing for us to fear. Don't worry about it. Understand that God is in control. Don't look at the physical thing that's out there. Don't look at the things the way that you perceive it. And understand in God's kingdom, in God's economy, there's angels everywhere. You got them outnumbered. And this guy goes, whoa, I see now. And all of a sudden his faith is, his confidence is boosted. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people with blindness. So he goes up to these guys that were attacking him 
And he says, look, attack this, uh, take these uh, Syrian guys and blind them, I pray. So he, God, struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And then Elisha said to them, and he does the old Star Wars droid trick, these are not the droids you seek thing. He says, <laughs> he goes, this is not the way, nor is it the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them into Samaria. So these guys are coming up. Let's just say there's 30, 50 of these guys on horseback. He blinds them, and he says, ah, follow me. And he's going to take them right back into home, into Samaria, the capital of Israel. And so these Syrians are going to sit down there and be uh, deluged, uh, deluded into, into following him. And it came about when they had come into Samaria, so they're all being led away in their blindness, that Elisha said, O oh Lord, now open the eyes of these men, the enemy, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, there were in the midst of Samaria. And all of a sudden, these guys came in, and they go, ooh, you know, they wake up, and they're going, what are we doing? We're right now in the heart of enemy territory. We're now we're the ones that are, are trapped. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, he, so he's sitting down there, and he sees Elijah come marching in with, you know, 30, 50 guys behind him on horseback of the enemy of the Syrians. He's going, look at this. We got these guys' heads handed to us on a silver platter. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father. And notice he calls him my father, like you're my buddy, old pal, best friend in the whole wide world. You brought me some of the enemy's heads on a silver platter. And he comes up, he goes, shall I kill him? Oh, buddy, let's just lop their heads off. We got them right where they want them. Shall I kill them? Ask him twice. He's just licking his chops, wanting to cut their heads off. And he said, no, cut it out. You're not going to kill these guys. He says, you shall not kill them. Would you, would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword? If these guys were just surrendered, well, yeah, they surrendered spiritually to you. But if they surrendered with a sword, you wouldn't cut their heads off. That's not how you treat prisoners. Would you, would uh, you kill those you've taken captive with a sword and with your bow? He says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and then send them home. You know, they're going to be flipped out when they see what happened to them, that they were blinded. They couldn't touch the guy that they were looking for and they walked right into the enemy. And then they turn around and they fed us and sent us home. What a story that's going to be to come back to Ben-Hadad. Well, I went down, we were going to trap them, and all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but we were eating, and, you know, they're a pretty good bunch of guys. <laughs> right? The old uh, put a, uh, uh, pray for those who persecute you, uh, bless those, you know, will be heaping burning coals upon their head, and that's just what they're doing. It says, we don't have to kill these guys. Let's put a blessing on them. So he prepared a great feast for them. Let's, let's just wine and dine them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent, them a, he sent them away and they went to their master and the marauding bands of uh, Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel until the next verse. <laughs> that always kills me why it says that. And then the next verse is, now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all of his army. But anyway... There must have been a time lapse in between the two stories here, between verse 23 and 24. And obviously it's getting some, some peace and some rest in here. And obviously you're seeing that God is trying to sit down and says, you know, teaching us once again, things are not the way that we perceive them. There are spiritual forces of strength and encouragement for you and I to tap into. 
That's the desire that God is saying there's, there's things that are out there that you don't perceive with your, with your mind, with your eye. The spiritual kingdom is vast. It's strong. And if we could see things with our spiritual eyes, we would sit down and go, God, you can do everything. But with the physical eye, oh, iron sinks. Oh, we're trapped. There's 30 of them and two of us. What are we going to do? you got to see that there's a whole spiritual kingdom that is alive and strong and vibrant for you and I to tap into. That's what God wants us to do. I'm always amazed at man's quest to deny the obvious and to draw all the wrong conclusions. Um, back in the 70s, uh, uh, an offshoot of NASA, they started this uh, space program called SETI. S-E-T-I was the acronym for it. And what it was was the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And the United States started spending billions of dollars because they were convinced, you know, that there has to be some extraterrestrial intelligence out there. So let's build all these huge listening devices to listen to what's going on out in space. And hence, if you go down to Tucson, you can see all these huge, you know, dishes that are all pointed to the sky. And there you can sit down. They, they came up with their first signal that they perceived, and they were all excited about it. And they called it uh, LGM-1. And this signal was a, 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 a constant beeping, and they go, look, it's some type of code from outer space. There's, there's probably up to 10,000 planets out there that can support life just in our, in our universe alone. So, so someone out there has got to be speaking to us, and they hear the beep, beep, beep. Well, they do all their homework. They do all their... Their, their research, and they find out it's a pulsar. It's a star collapsing, and it sends off a signal as it's being destroyed, and we pick up a beep, beep, and, we, and everybody was so excited to think of this beep, beep, beep as, as somebody sending us a signal. We just got to be smart enough to, to understand it. They're spending billions of dollars to listen for what's going on out in space. And they're trying to say, it's got, a, it's got a, a, an intelligence behind it. It's got a, a, a pattern to it. It has to be some you know, higher form of intelligence that's trying to speak to us. There's life outside there. They're desperate to see that. Well, once they find out it's just the pulsar and they kind of go, oh, it's nothing. They kind of just, you know, they shrug that off. And they even called the LGM-1 was stood for little green men is what they, they thought that they said, well, maybe there's little green men out there trying to speak to us. And yet, if you took your, your, your telescopes and turned them into microscopes and started to look inside the human body, you can start to see that your DNA is all together and there's four different strands of the DNA that come together to make all the different coding sequences of each and every single cell so that there's a gazillion different codes that happen through DNA, through these four different characteristics as you put them together. There's billions of, 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 of uh, uh, DNA strands that makes each... Why don't you try looking inside? You'd see all type of intelligent design. And man turns around and they go, no, that's just a fluke. But the little beep, beep, beep. 
big. Oh, that's, that's, that's something big. And man, man's crazy. We, we ignore the obvious. We ignore the spiritual realm around us in light of what we want to see as something tangible. We want to see 30 men, us too, and we panic. God, God is saying you've got to be smart enough to see the intelligent design of God working through the universe in your life. There's nothing that is going to work in your life besides God. There is a God-shaped void in your heart. God made you. And he says there's something lacking inside of you. And you've got to fill that void, that hole in your heart. It's the missing piece of the puzzle that fits perfectly in your life is God. And yet man says, no, I can't do that. Uh, I don't want Jesus in my life. I'll try alcohol, drugs, women, this, that. I'll, I'll do anything I can to fill that void, that emptiness in my life. There's only one thing that's going to fill that void, and that's Jesus Christ. He's your maker. He's your creator. And it is so obvious that your life comes together when you trust in Jesus Christ. So let's keep rolling. Verse 24. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, comes back up again. Didn't learn too much, did he? He gathered all of his army. He went up and he besieged Samaria. So now he's going to attack them. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And that's what they would do. They would, they, would, they would surround a city. They would lock themselves up into a walled city. And then it was a matter of a waiting game. Well, now Samaria, the walled city, as it's got the enemy camped about it, they're going to start to be hungry. They're starving. Interesting is Samaria fed them, and now these guys are trying to starve Samaria. He gathered all of his army, went up and besieged Samaria, and there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until it, things were so desperate that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. So normally, if you wanted to eat an animal, you'd eat a cow. You wouldn't even eat a donkey. And then if you wanted to, if you butchered a donkey to eat it, you'd definitely cut the head off and throw it in the trash. But I guess you could now take the donkey's head and boil it and get some type of broth out of this thing. And all of a sudden, what used to be trash has got such value that it would sell for 80 shekels of silver. So your money's having no value. You've got to eat. And then it says a fourth of a cab of dove's dung. <laughs> that sold for five shekels of silver. So I guess dove's dung uh, would be a type of fuel. So you could sit down and burn it, I guess, and then that could be something you could cook with. So your resources are running out. A donkey's head selling for 80 shekels or whatever it is, and then a cab. Of, how, how bad is it when you got to start scraping up dove's dung and start, start weighing it out and then divide it into fourths and then say, that's worth five shekels. So they're starving. They're hungry. Poverty striking in. And the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. He's watching the whole situation. He's assessing it. And all of a sudden, one of the women come up. Women cried out to him saying, Help, O Lord, O king. And here he is. He says, What can I do for you? We're starving to death here. Leave me alone. He says, If the Lord does not help you, God's not helping us, then from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? I can't give you any food. I can't give you anything to eat. God's going to have to sit down and do something here because I certainly can't. And the king said to her, well, what's your problem anyway? What can I do for you? Uh, what's the matter with you? And she answered, oh, you know, there's an injustice here. This woman, this other lady over here, she said to me, you give me your son that we may eat him today. 
and we will eat my son tomorrow. We had a deal. We're going to eat one kid today and another kid the next day. So, hey, we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, well, now it's time to give us your son that we may eat him. Oh, but she's reneged on her deal. King, go tell her to cook up her son to make it fair. Now, that's pretty morbidly sick and disgusting. And when the king hears this, he's going, man, how bad is this? And it came about when the king heard the words of this woman, he's just going, man, this is too much, man. We gotta, we're all dying here. He tore his robe clothes. He's ripping himself apart. He says, now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked. And they're looking at their king, who should be a mighty man of stature and valor. They're looking at him, and he had sackcloth beneath his body. And they're saying, this guy is humbled to saying, I've got to trust in the Lord. And then he said, and then he said, may God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Seraphath, remains on him today. So remember when before it was my father, buddy old pal, best friend? Now all of a sudden, Elisha is that weasel, I'm going to kill him. And it's amazing what food will do to somebody. It's amazing what we do when we're in desperate situations. It's amazing on who we turn on in the heat of battle. And uh, this guy's turning on him for a meal. I think it's Ernie. Ernie told me the story. Ernie here? Ernie Evans? I don't see him. Wherever. He, he tells me the story. He quotes Chuck Smith, and, uh, and, he, and Chuck Smith is quoting Aristotle or somebody. I don't know. Some famous historian. And the guy comes up to the guy, Socrates or somebody, and says, you know, hey, Socrates, I'll, I would do anything. I'll, I want to learn from you. You're the wisest guy in the world. I'll do anything that you ask me to do. I want to I learn the truths that you have. Please, I'm your disciple. I'm yours. So Socrates turns around and says, here, take this dead fish and carry it with you for a week. Guy goes, what? I ain't carrying no stinking dead fish around with me for a week. What, are you crazy? Turns around, throws the fish down, and walks away. And Aristotle or Socrates, I forget the story. Turns around and he says, see, what devotion. What devotion and in, in, in to see how he separated over one dead fish. That's all it took. And sometimes that's all it takes for us. We turn around, we go to God. We go, God, I'll do anything, anything, anything you want. I believe in you and I'm yours and I'm your child and I'll do anything you want. And God says, oh, I want you to do this. Take the stick and throw it in the water. Well, I wouldn't do anything that stupid. We miss the blessing. We miss everything. When God comes up and he asks, he's speaking to us. And we say, Lord... Uh, and, and here it is, for, for the price of a meal, this guy's starving to death, he turns on Elisha. He says, man, I'll kill this guy. I've had it with him. And Elisha said, man, you don't understand the way God's working things. You're not understanding God's economy. There's a bigger thing out here. So Elisha now was sitting in his house. He's sitting there playing cards and uh, got a good game of euchre going with the boys, right? And the elders were sitting with him. They're all sitting around there. They're not panicking. They're not, they're not uh, upset. And the king sent a man after uh, from his presence. So the king's coming after him. He's going to send this guy after him to break up the euchre game. But before, uh, uh, and the king says, but uh, before the messenger comes to the door, so before all this starts to happen, as he's playing the game, he says to the elders, he goes, do you see how the son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? 
So they're just playing euchre, and he goes to the other guys, and he says, hey, do you know that king? He's trying to kill me. Comes about the blue, and there's already a messenger on the way. And he goes, I can see these things happening long before they happen. I can understand what's going on here. Look at, he says, uh, uh, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my life? Look. He says, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut tight against him. Uh, is not the sound of his master's feet right behind him? So there's going to become a guy knocking on my door, and you know we're going to sit down and hold the door against him. And when he was still talking with them, bam, all of a sudden, behold, the messenger came down to him. And he said, behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why shall I wait for the Lord any longer? And so he's saying, I quit. I've had it. And all of a sudden, the king's coming in. He's saying, Elijah, I can't handle it anymore. I've quit. You know, we're, we're starving to death. We've got people eating their kids. Okay, God, I give in. Uncle. And then Elisha said, listen, listen to uh, uh, the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. You want some deliverance? Here's a promise for you. He says, thus says tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. So we'll give you a pound of flour for a buck. That's how cheap things are going to be. A measure of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. Here's a prophecy for you. Tomorrow, everything's going to be changed, and you've got all the food you want. And two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. We're going to have uh, plenty of food. So the guy that was the messenger that went ahead of the king, and now the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning, said, what are you what are you on, drugs? How do you expect that to happen? We're starving to death here, and tomorrow there's going to be food all over the place? The royal officer whose hand the king was leaning on said to the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? That's impossible. And then he said, Behold, you shall see it with your own eyes. Because of your lack of faith, you're going to see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. No way. God's going to show you that he can do it, but because of your unbelief, you're not trusting in the Lord. You can die on this stuff. Now, as the story unfolds, it says, Now there are four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. Maybe here's where Gehazi is. <laughs> Trying hard to put the men in the story. But there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, you know, here we are. We're good Jews starving to death in here. Why do we sit here until we die? We got, we're lepers. Our own people hate us. Why don't we go out there? And so they say, if we, uh, uh, verse 4, if we say we shall enter the city, well, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. So why go to be with the rest of the Jews? We're all going to die there. And if we sit here, we're also going to die also. And therefore, sorry, now, therefore, come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. Let's go to the enemy. If they spare us, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, what's the problem? We're going to die anyway. So I like this. All options are we're dead. We might as well try something. That's good thinking for us because sometimes we need to think that way. You know, if you live in the world and party, you're going to die. If you reject Jesus Christ, you're going to die. Everything's going to be die. So why not trust Jesus Christ? Well, what can it hurt? Their, their logic's kind of simple. We've got leprosy. We're, we're doomed no matter what we do. So let's go try and bum a loaf of bread from the enemy. So they arose at twilight, and they tiptoed over to the camp. They go over to the camp of the Arameans, and when they came uh, to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, no one was there. And here's why. It says in verse 6, For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots. So they're hearing the war cry, they're hearing the sound of chariots. These guys are notoriously drunkards. 
we see several scenes of him where the king of Aram is drunk. Who knows what's going on inside your head? They hear the sound of chariots and the sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to come out upon us. So these are some famous notorious hitmen. So what are they hearing? Is, did God make them just hear a sound? Maybe they're hearing the host of the angels that were around them before. It's all coming back to them, and they're saying, maybe we're messing with God against people that, that were feeding us, and they're going to sit down and panic, and they sit down there. Therefore, they arose, and they fled in the twilight. And these guys are screaming, and they don't know what's going on. They're hearing noises, and they left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. So these lepers come up and they go, look, everything's just sitting here. Well, everyone just left. Wow, payday. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate. You can see them just go, hong, hong. You know, hey, we don't care about anything besides ourselves. Let's stuff our face. And they drank and they're going, Hoo-hoo! and they carried silver and gold and clothes and, and they went and hid them. They're like, let's we gotta keep some of this stuff and bury it real quick so we can survive. And all of a sudden they realize they're going, man, what are we doing? And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. And then they said to one another, what we're doing is not right. And this isn't right. We got people starving to death back home. This day is a day of good news. But we are keeping silent. That's always a crime. You finally figure out that you're saved and you're set free and you have all the gifts of God at you. You just can't keep quiet about it. You got to speak. That's the way God likes us to minister. He says, well, this isn't good. Uh, We're just keeping silent about it. This isn't just for us. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. If we get caught doing this, we're in trouble. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city. And they told them, saying, we came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there. So here's some lepers screaming up from the wall. And they're going, hey, there's a ton of food right over here. And the guy's looking down saying, we're starving to death. You want us to leave our wall? Now therefore, right, middle of verse 9. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Oh, sorry, verse 10. So they came and they called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied in the tents just as they were. And the gatekeepers called, and they told it within the king's household. And then the king arose in the night, tiptoed over there and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. This is a big trap. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, uh, they have gone into the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall capture them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants answered and he said, please, hey, who cares? We're going to die here anyway. Please, let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. So what if they go out there and die? Whoop-de-doo, we're all dying here. The multitude of, uh, in any case, the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send it and see. Let's try this, test it out. They therefore took two chariots with horses, and the king uh, sent after the army of the Arameans, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. All of a sudden you have starving men diving on food and clothes and water and drink. 
It's, a, it's worse than a British soccer game, you know. They're just going to storm the gates. <laughs> then a measure... Then a measure and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Oh, it says, Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 17. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And it came about, just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow, but uh, about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer, the guy who didn't believe it, then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if, if the Lord should make windows of heaven and such a thing be, and he said, Behold, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. Intense story. All three things tie together, though. Chapter 7 and chapter 8. You're watching where we look and we believe in the natural mind, the situation that we're in, and we say, it's totally impossible, God. God, there's no way you're going to get me out of this. We have a way of thinking in the logical sense, and we're saying, God, you know, I, I'm in a dilemma. I need to have this, 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 and this happen. That's impossible. So I guess you just totally let me down. And we automatically can be, and the last twist of the last story is, here's the guy who says, that's impossible. And God's saying, you're going to see it, but you're just going to kill you. You're not going to partake of the blessings of it. And that, to me, is the fear, where God says, you know, great things are happening. Dave, you can be part of the blessings of the Lord. Or you can sit back in your unbelief, in your doubt, and you're gonna, God's still going to move, and it's going to trample right by you and, and, and crush you. And, and, and we have to sit down and say, Lord, I, I pray that I would have spiritual eyes to see things in God's economy and that he is in total control out of every circumstance in my life and to say, Lord, uh, you know, I see 30 men right in front of me that are going to, you know, take me hostage and prisoner and kill me. And God says, look at the host of heaven around you. Look at all the other things that are there. Just like Peter, when Peter was thrown in prison, James is already beheaded. I'm sure Peter could be sitting down there saying, you know, this is the end. Uh, uh, you know, they killed my buddy James. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. And yet, as he's there with four squads of soldiers, chained up between the angel comes in unlocks the door and peter walks out and you know you could at that moment sit down and be in the middle of major panic mode but peter is what peter's sound asleep he's sleeping like a little baby saying god's problem god will take care of it god's in control and so many times it has to be you and i if we're facing the crisis of the century we have to sit down there and says god all things are possible. You could do some crazy, weird things. So many times when we think we have the list of options that we believe that God is going to work in. And let me tell you, that's detrimental to your walk with God. When you're encountering a problem, you need to sit down and say, Lord, you could do this, you could do this, but then again, God, you could do something I couldn't even think of. Second Corinthians tells us, right? Uh, all that the eye has seen uh, the, or the ear has heard 
It hasn't even entered into the heart of man the things which the Spirit of God wants to do in your life. You can't even, uh, Paul was telling us, you can't even fantasize on what God wants to do in your life. Take your best fantasy, play it out, and then God does one better. That's what Paul's saying, that the Spirit of God wants to do wild and crazy things in your life. He wants to take you to different places, different highs, different lows. There's different things that are happening. We have to sit down and say, Lord, I want to put my hand in yours. I want to be open to the power of the Holy Spirit to move and to change and to build and to do something completely different. And God says, I'm going to take you for the wildest ride of your life. And so many times the, 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 the ride starts off destruction hits home we go oh it's all over with it's not going to happen and we hit a roadblock we hit a wall god you can't get past this wall we surrender we quit and we walk away and we miss the biggest blessing and elisha is trying to say god is doing a wonderful work israel you've been a bad country bad bad israel god's gonna spank you you got a spanking coming. But don't give up on God. God, God has a better plan, and he's going to work you through the spanking, through the problem, so that you're going to be better, stronger, more equipped to go into the future. He has got a beautiful plan for your life. The only thing you can do is say, Lord, take my life. Use me as you will. I want to be open to anything that you got. You're a big God. God, you can create the galaxies, the universe, the whatever is out there. It's bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and it is amazing when you look at the stars and say, all this is out there. And God just kind of goes, watch this. Well, a gazillion light years away, we'll throw a gazillion more stars out there. And they're, what, what good are they? They're just for God's pleasure and God's glory. If God can create the universe, make this big rock of the moon float around our place. You've got the huge burning sun burning and burning and burning and burning and we got a gazillion other stars out there and god's like that's nothing that's just you know that's you know half a day's work i just throw it out there certainly he cares about your problem he cares about the issues that you're going through and he's trying to say i love you and i care about you amen questions come father we do thank you and we do praise you that you are an awesome god father i pray that each and every single person here father that you would show us, Father, uh, uh, something that, that, that takes us beyond our own way of thinking, Father. I pray that this week in our lives, Father, that you would open up the doors that we would normally think are closed, Father, but uh, we want to be open to what you're able to do. Father, I pray. Uh, I pray for our lack of faith and I pray for our unbelief, Father, that you would correct it and heal it. And that we, Father, would start to see things through your economy, through your eyes. Father, you're a big God. Father, we love you. And I thank you just that you have done so many miracles in this church, Father. I pray that we would be open and just excited just to see what you're going to do next. Father, we thank you for this wonderful journey called life. And I pray that you just continue to move and to touch and to heal as only you can, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.